I feel like the Brits have just very, very nice iTunes reviews. There's none of the shade yeah. that you sometimes get from American iTunes reviews. Yeah, our American listeners are as awful <laughs> as we are. <laughs> Live from the Mundangerous Palisades in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 171 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're busting down doors as we discuss sieges. But first, the rogue traders finally get off this miserable rock in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the siege engine knocks but doesn't wait for an answer in the character creation forge. So this episode is brought to you by Cobalt Press, uh, who runs Patreon-supported projects. Like Warlock. You know, you can be the patron of Warlock, right? Although you're probably a cruel and fickle patron, as I would be. <laughs> That's the worst pun. It's a great... <laughs> I'm not supposed to do this, but it's pun. truly bad. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you know Cobalt Press. They're the publisher of the Midgard campaign setting for 5th edition D&D. Yeah, if you support through Warlock, the Cobalts can make new 5e Midgard material on a regular, ongoing basis. In return for becoming a patron, you get first access to new maps, new monsters, new 5e character options, and so much more. You know, if you're the DM, that means that uh, you can use the material before your players will ever have a chance to look at it. They, they will not be able to cheat. They can't cheat you. That's exactly. Right. And, and if you're the player. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're the player, you can pay to win. So subscribe today and instantly, instantly get access to brand new mini dungeons and adventurers like Smuggler's Run. Black Sarcophagus, the Fey Courts. I'm taking you to Fey Court. Yeah, I want my six baubles back. Well, each of those baubles was an entire world. <laughs> I want my baby's soul back, okay? Can <laughs> I? I'm sorry, we've already eaten your child. Yeah, uh, no, sorry. Here's green, a hag. Green hag over yeah. here. <laughs> here's a changeling. There you go. Huh? Huh? It's just as good. Actually, it's newer. We made your baby newer. So when you support Cobalt uh, Press via Patreon, you help expand the world of 5th edition dark fantasy. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash Press. You know, Shane, you also expand the world of dark fantasy by playing a tiny cat. I do. Uh, in episodes that are still airing now on the Tales from Mox Fairy podcast, uh, there's a link in the show notes and you can find it at geekspective.com. I think I forgot to mention that uh, oh, yeah. last week. <laughs> Where is Mox Ferry, or what is Mox Ferry? Mox Ferry is a fictional uh, is city. Is it fictional? It's not real? Oh, yep, yep. Um, and it, nor is it in any published campaign setting uh, created by the podcast um, in order to uh, house their Blades in the Dark characters. Um, it houses uh, many gangs and factions, including the uh, the players themselves, the Night Snails. Um, they had many other more clever names available to them, but they decided on Night Snails for reasons not entirely understood is that night snails like hey it's dark inside this shell or night snails as in my shell is my armor and i shall be your champion uh that's a good question <laughs> well their base <laughs> is an abandoned theater <laughs> so okay maybe it's i want to crawl into my shell and die ah look okay real talk real talk um for far too long 
I thought Knights Black Agents was with a K because I didn't get the Shakespeare reference. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, vampires, right? That's like medieval-ish, mm-hmm. right? Oh, medieval super spies. Or, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. Uh, that's great. No, nope, it's NBA. All right. Speaking of getting the wrong end of things, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the Dead World Malajact, the Rogue Traders have reached an accord with their rival, Lord Captain Duhon Roth. And they finally have a chance to escape the Inquisition service and this throne-forsaken planet. Finally. I am always just trying to get off of whatever terrible planet we are on. And I'm sure this is the last time that will happen. <laughs> you have lost your arch militant Draco mm-hmm. uh, due to a um, a strange Inferno pistol accident. And quite a bit of whiskey at the table. Then you have concluded your business with Roth, um, like reached your agreement. And then you have been led psychically to one of the Inquisition battle wagons that accompanied him. Um, And a second man has died today, has he not? Yes, the mutilated body of Turvey, twin brother of our fake rogue trader Silva Lionheart, who we had sent to the black ships, uh, begged for death because he is in a terrible state. And as the emperor says, uh, only in death does duty end. And so... Trank grants him absolution and peace with a bullet to the head. So uh, upon his death, Flair begins to understand the events of the Verza house because you you now understand the engine itself. Um, You understand who was attacking the fortress, uh, but you still haven't quite figured out how all these hauntings happened and how they were... Because it was haunted. It was haunted. How they were so personal right like it wasn't like they were just you know random shades these were all projections from you oh it wasn't because we're all already damned and the warp just knows our innermost secrets that's I mean, what i assumed it could have been that <laughs> but flair begins to understand it's actually it was it was turvy himself attempting to warn you right like as he said he tried to warn you um but because of the psychic energy of the Zinch engine that was in the basement, um, it warped what he was able to do. It limited him, and and that's the outcome. All of those hauntings, like all of the the strangely personal things, um, they were all coming from Turvey and and him trying to reach you and warn you of what would happen and um, how terrible the place was. He had the best of intentions, uh, you know, Shane. I think now is the time that we need to mention where this storyline came from because i think there are a few of our listeners who are going wait a minute this sounds familiar yeah it came pretty much straight from dan abnett's uh only in death uh yeah from the gaunt's ghost series now i have now read that book i had not read that book and you never told us where it all came from so as i was reading that book i was like wait a minute this is <laughs> Wait, hold on, hold on. Let me go one more chapter. Wait a minute. Uh huh. Yeah, I read that like an adventure, <laughs> and I ran it like an adventure. <laughs> and and I kept being like, "Wait, so I'm the commissar?" Yeah. <laughs> I had to mix some stuff up. It was it wasn't a perfect recreation. I had to. I mean, I did. It was personalized to to you as a party, of course, but um, and also you know like they were just fighting regular chaos, uh, like 
cultists and warriors something yeah yeah yeah, they weren't necessarily fighting the house itself i mean when i was reading it i was also like oh that's a that's a bad idea don't go in there yeah (laughs) i know what happens in there yeah i uh, i definitely stole some set pieces um i was very proud of myself for pulling it off it was well pulled off thank you thank you so with our business concluded we all mount up and return to base leaving behind turvy's body just another dried skull in a dusty valley So when you arrive with the new information in hand, uh, Inquisitor Felicitas and um, the Dark Angel immediately begin breaking down their camp (laughs) uh, in order to pursue this new lead on Cypher, right? Like they have, they are able to use that and some other information that you don't have in order to, um, you know, get the next place they need to go. Um, and as Roth anticipated, it doesn't take much to convince her to just cut the his enduring light loose from her service because you have fulfilled your purpose. Yeah, this is exactly what we were looking for, right? Like benign neglect. Right. What we were worried is, ah, you fulfilled your purpose. Now I shoot all of you. Right. And it, I take your ship because why not? Yeah. Roth is like, look, they, they did their part. Like for this next bit, you don't need all my ships either. Let's let's cut some of this fleet free and, and let us continue on our business. And she's like, yeah, sure, whatever. Just pack up quickly. Yeah, I don't, I don't care. Don't get in my way. Like Now we are but ants to her, which is so ideal. Right. So as the, uh, the remaining crew and armsmen uh, launch from the surface back to the His Enduring Light, Echo looks out one of the viewports and for just a fleeting glimpse... She would swear she sees an obsidian black fortress nestled into the cliffs at the base of a mountain range. It looks flawless, but it's gone in a blink. Once finally aboard ship, we set course for our next project, this new planet, a joint venture with Roth, a colony world which we can make our own. I mean, you know, assuming we don't totally screw it up, which definitely won't happen. Right. So just before launching, though, Flare our astropath detects the warp wake of a large incoming ship. And there is but one horrifying word that resolves over the ship's box before we disappear into the safety of the warp. Ravager. And we'll find out what terrible things happen next week. So this week, we are talking about sieges, which is fitting considering we just wrapped up the Malajact arc. (laughs) which was a multi-session long siege. Yeah, sieges are mostly discussed from a medieval or fantasy perspective, right? Like knights in armor, cavalry, pikemen on one side of a big stone wall, and I don't know, archers, I guess, on the other side, catapults, etc., etc. But really, that's just the trappings of a siege. Like the Verza house wasn't in any way medieval. No, and I mean, like, even up until the 20th century, right? Like, a wall around a city was still a pretty imposing barrier to actually see, like, conquering the city. Yeah, I mean, even in a setting like 40K, where you have, like, ships, it's it's ships surrounding a planet, and you've got, like, a fortress world. Or, like, Cadia mm-hmm. is basically under siege all the time Constantly. from the warp. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so you might have things like void shields or, or different things to prevent um, outside... Um, you know, bombs or explosives or energy or whatever um, from just leveling the city. But still, if an army marches into the shield, now you're just fighting a siege behind a wall. So what what makes a siege? Like, why are they awesome? So they're big set piece battles, like major military conflicts between two armies. 
with a wall in between. <laughs> uh, sometimes, or often, lots of other things in between too. But the important thing here is that one group has a wall to sit behind uh, in relative safety, and the other group needs to get through that wall in order to defeat them or you know conquer what whatever's on the other side. Yeah, this is even one of those situations where like the feds are coming for you, and there are like three people in an apartment uh, with guns like hiding behind the furniture going all right how long can we hold out you yeah know, occasionally we take pot shots and they don't want to get shot but they're bringing in the battering ram the swat team yeah like literally i mean you could look at this like news headlines still today call it like you know like a criminal cartel like or um atf besieges criminal cartel stronghold mm-hmm. you know like just the idea of there are walls protecting you and all you have to do is survive on the inside that means you're under siege or under siege two, if you're on a submarine. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Uh, four walls separating you from the uh, briny depths. Uh, now, the idea of a siege in a game uh, can often be like better than the actuality of it, because like historically, these were battles of attrition that just lasted months like the defenders inside the castle walls are doing nothing except rationing their food and the attackers are using every possible trick they can think of to break through the walls climb over the walls dig under the walls yeah uh redirect a river to flood the walls you know whatever you gotta do it's how cyrus took babylon according to herodotus (laughs) why are you building a city on two sides of a river come on come on so this this creates this um you know variety of unique occurrences and strategies that that really only happen um in this scenario right so you have things like starvation and famine um quickly become like the theme of the people stuck inside right like that's basically how you win a siege um up to a certain point of technology was just like surround the castle cut off all of their outside supplies and just wait until they no longer have the willpower to starve <laughs> and they will open the doors and, sur- and surrender and invite you inside yeah you know, this is the main reason why people don't besiege dragons <laughs> yeah because <laughs> you're just you're just yeah yeah we got the only uh, entrance to the cave it's fine we know the dragon's in there but we are going to have to wait 800 years yeah. for it to starve <laughs> i'm going to commit the next uh 20 generations to sitting that's here. why you got to hire elf mercenaries right uh but you know you gotta you gotta put the payment in the bank because compound interest nothing is stronger than that right um, you also get into things like psychological warfare, right? You know, um, the uh, the whole like blaring music at all hours of the night to make it miserable to live inside or um, airdropping leaflets that uh, encourage you to surrender and that there is no hope or um, like newspaper clippings that tell you of faraway events that your side is losing. Yeah, what was the thing that sometimes happened is, you know, they would the besieging army would like kill all of the people in the countryside the farmers and all that round mm-hmm. them all up cut off the heads and just like catapult the heads into the city yeah real real charming or sometimes plague victims that worked too yeah that, yeah if, if you want an empty city when you get there uh, there's also ample opportunity for infiltration right the army can't march directly through the walls because the walls are still there but you could have a small strike team somehow infiltrate their way in and kill the gate team and lower the gate. Yeah, I mean, and especially because this is a role-playing game, you almost certainly could do that. <laughs> right, that's what the Eladrins are for. Right. <laughs> Teleport behind the walls. Um, or, you know, of course there's a, a secret sewer tunnel that drains into the river. Um, 
you know, a few hundred yards behind that nobody knows about except for that one person who knows. Or no one thinks anyone would be insane enough to try to take it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you, there's also an opportunity to um, turn people inside the city to your side, whether they're going to commit treason or you have leverage over them in some way, blackmail. Yeah, this is especially true in some of the more modern um, like type sieges where the walls themselves of the city either don't exist or fall relatively quickly. Um, but there are still people who are stranded in areas that are controlled by the attackers. A lot of times they either turn, um, like the Battle of Stalingrad, right? Like a bunch of Russians turned to fight for the Germans um, because they saw which way the tides of <laughs> fortune were shifting. Or alternatively, you might be able to have some type of contact with somebody inside who might be able to like found uh, like a cell of people who are undermining the defenses themselves. And then I think even if you don't play this out, at least in the background, you want to have scenes of brute force, battering rams against the gate, catapults, or, you know, you scale that up to ballista and trebuchet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, there's We're flinging also... elephants, yeah, flinging yeah. elephant corpses. Um, you know, just mundane things like uh, earthen ramps and ladders and, and those types of things to uh, scaling equipment to climb over the wall which are, of course, met by uh, burning oil and tar being tossed over the side. Yeah, terrible booby traps of, you know, even just like pointy sticks. These are all things that hurt people on ladders. Or, you know, just you're running along pushing the ladders off the side and, you know, 14 men fall to their death. Right. You know, I mean, even if you, like, do manage to break through the uh, the walls at the gate, um, the gatehouse is booby-trapped, so the first 60 people through are going to meet their fiery doom. And fortunately, that creates um, yet another obstacle. Right. <laughs> the gate's gone, but now there's rubble. Now there's wall of fire. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is Helm's Deep, right? This is, you're just trying to murder as many of the attackers as possible, and the attackers are trying to overwhelm you with numbers. Right. There's also bombing and, and um, you know, explosives and sappers and those types of things can also be uh, useful for breaking through defenses or demoralizing or simply destroying the defenders. Uh, sometimes, though, just a well-placed sniper can take out the people who are in charge, either the general who's directing the siege or maybe the general who's directing the defense. Yep, I, that's another like real-world example, right? Like the, uh, was it War of the Rats? The, like, the story of the German and the Russian sniper in Stalingrad um, and how that, that became like almost less about the like number of targets they were eliminating as they were hunting each other and more about like the legend that was growing around them and like the propaganda value of this like ace sniper who is just, you know, um, like murderous and, and unfindable. That's a fun campaign to play. Yeah, it might be a little lonely. <laughs> I mean, you could be a tiny strike team. Right. Uh, it, but it, it's a fun, like, um, certainly aspect of the siege that a character could take over while the other characters are doing other things. So how do the sieges tend to end? Uh, well, either the defenders um, simply live, um, mostly through willpower, um, willing to just outlast the strategic value of the location. So, you know, usually... Usually people don't fight wars just to take a single city, um, but that city might represent like an important, you know, um, supply line or like have a have an important point on a river or something like that. Um, 
if the value of that objective is costing too much or like the priorities have shifted elsewhere, sometimes the attackers just leave. Yeah, people sometimes forget that, uh, yes, inside the besieged city, starvation and famine are a problem, but they're also a huge problem for the army outside. Yeah. Because they need supply lines. Like they're not from here. They don't have stores of grain. They didn't cart them in with them. Yeah. And if you go and murder all the farmers to uh, to catapult their heads into the, de- the city with the defenders, you've killed all the farmers on the land that you were expecting to survive off of while you were besieging this city. I thought this would be done by the end of summer. <laughs> Unfortunately, now <laughs> winter is coming. Right. They're inside a, uh, stone walls with fireplaces. <laughs> we have tents. Right. Um, the alternative is that sometimes a flanking army will come um, and engage the attackers themselves um, and that can free up the defenders to either leave the castle um, and charge out and like pincer the uh, the attacking army um, or forces them to just leave lest that happen and sometimes like you win only to find out that now you're stuck inside <laughs> which happened to the Germans at Stalingrad famously as winter approached like the Germans captured the city and then got encircled by the Soviets, who it turned out had a lot more men. It, it turned out. <laughs> yeah. Historically, do besiegers often win? I think so, yeah. I, I mean, it. I think it totally depends like on the war that you're looking at. But yeah, I mean, like cities have to be captured, you know? So if you're playing in a game, whichever side you find yourself on, it is it's reasonable and it's feasible for you to be on the winning side. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess net net it's got to be 50-50, right? The attackers always face the defenders, so I mean, if it wasn't a tactic that ever worked, no one would do it. Right. <laughs> also like the last one to attack always wins, I suppose. But that's kind of like the last place you look for your keys is where you always find them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> They were dead, so they didn't attack back. (laughs) All right, so historicity aside, perhaps, uh, when you're trying to actually run a siege in an RPG, what are some of the challenges that you need to deal with? So I think one of the most obvious ones is that mass combat rules (laughs) exist. Oh, they're hot garbage everywhere. So you run into this problem of either they they exist in the rules and that yeah like you said they're flawed right they're not robust they're not immersive they change the core mechanic they just aren't known and understood well by the group like all of the reasons that we hate mass combat rules but a lot of times you don't even have mass combat rules you just have core rules um, and when you're critting five percent of the time uh, turns out that a thousand archers is just going to murder you. <laughs> Right, my arrow pierced the stone wall because I rolled really well on damage. Right, it's it's just like, cool, every siege takes uh, six rounds. Yeah. <laughs> so that doesn't quite work, right? Uh, yeah, it's like, basically like, hey, do you want to run an entire session of grappling? Yeah, right. Why don't we all re- read those rules and then house rule on the fly? Can we can we law of large numbers this, please? <laughs> uh, there was a great Order of the Stick comic about that when, um, was it like the the whatever the blue city is azure city azure city yeah. there you go yeah like when that gets besieged <laughs> they're like quickly doing the math and it's like we can't win <laughs> no, no no you don't understand we can't survive <laughs> it's just the law of large numbers uh, especially when you're playing something like D, you're also dealing with um non-realistic effects like magic or super weapons yeah and and the challenge here is that you've got to like 
balance rewarding one side for having them or like or for planning protection against them without totally invalidating the power you know so it's like it's really cool if you've got earthquake in your party right that should be great at tearing down city walls and like breaking into the castle or whatever um but if you make it an earthquake proof castle great you know like that's like you took away my thing in order to enforce that this is going to be a siege like that doesn't feel so great for me as the earthquake guy yeah um turns out i can't uh, knock your walls down that's fine i will just kill everybody in your city yeah (laughs) (laughs) do you have earthquake proof people and peasants right (laughs) no (laughs) you know we scraped and we scrounged and we finally got up enough like excess uranium material for a dirty bomb and you're telling me I can't get it inside the city because it's <laughs> what it doesn't fit inside the sword grate. Thanks. Uh, but you know you're dealing with stuff like um, I mean in a fantasy setting like you have creatures that can fly. Mm-hmm. You know um, I don't know that there's a ton of like anti aircraft spells, but there are plenty of flight spells. Well, there's hurricane. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so druids is what you're telling me, right? <laughs> uh, or you know when you have teleportation magic, what? What's the point in walls? Right. You know, you're completely invalidating walls, especially if you have something like a mass teleportation spell. You know, if you can teleport an army in somewhere. I mean, this is why, like, teleportation circles are usually, like, so carefully guarded. Right, right. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe it's just a nice killing zone. Right. right? (laughs) Please teleport your entire army in. Yeah. So you've got to strike that balance between, like, what lets the players have fun um, and, like what things you want to allow um, or what you don't want to immediately just invalidate with protection or whatever in order to keep the game like some semblance of what looks like a recognizable siege uh, intact in the adventure. Yeah, also without making it so simple when they can just be like, oh, I use a fifth level spell and we're done. Right. Pass wall. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Counterspell. (laughs) I have an army of fifth level mages here. (laughs) All right. Uh, One of the other problems is that historically sieges take a very long time. They are slow. It's mostly just waiting. Yeah. Like that is the hardest part of a siege is that like you don't attack every single day. Um, You mostly just sit out there and wait for them to consume their resources inside and, you know, make sure that your army is ready. Um, But even so, like the idea that you would march an army with catapults and siege towers and all those types of things across like, you know, the... 12th century England like that just didn't happen right like everybody constructed those engines on the site so it took months like once you besiege the city before you even have the engines you need to attack because you basically have to like tear down a forest to build it yeah I much prefer the hey the party arrived just in time for the actual like uh, siege like scaling the walls right yeah <laughs> we were busy doing other things while you guys waited for a month right because otherwise you sort of run your party into like being forced into downtime uh-huh because it's like all right you're gonna be here for four months uh i guess you're putting everything else on hold because you don't really know what else is going on and if you're doing something else while the siege is happening then you're not running a siege game you're just showing up the last minute right you've also got a challenge of how you represent that attrition um that that should be a natural part of a siege right like what's the narrative impact of like the fact that your supplies are dwindling and your um troops are on half rations and and all of those things and then like also what's the mechanical impact you know like is it fair to give them like at a point just like a straight penalty um do they have automatic disadvantage on certain things you know it's like 
you got to figure out how to blend those two so that it feels like that's a real threat because you can say you're starving and then if they fight at full capacity like who cares yeah sure they're starving like they're just nameless npcs anyway right or you know your pcs pcs are starving okay well there's no mechanical effect yeah that, <laughs> like so. what's the yeah so okay. i need to eat every third day then it's, okay. it's like i'm at one hp all right, right. yeah <laughs> But I get it back if I just eat a full meal before I fight, right? right so, yeah, right. I'm good. I'll starve. I, I got you. <laughs> uh, or, you know, you're dealing with spells like create food and water or good berry. You know? <laughs> yeah. An army marches on its druids. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've also got to figure out the other events that are going to affect the players around the siege. Like, um, because it can't just be battle. <laughs> like, as it turns out, if you're just rolling attack rolls for four straight hours because you don't have mass combat rules and you're just sitting on the ramparts and trying to defend, um, there's not a whole lot of variety there. You know, like I got to imagine being an archer or being like the scalding hot oil pourer isn't actually all that thrilling of a job, especially after day three. Yeah, and especially like if you don't have any mass combat rules, like you have to make them up in some way because you you can't roll everything for everyone because then great okay the pcs go you roll five times maybe you kill five guys and now i as the gm have to sit here rolling 200 things for not only the attackers who are on the pc side but also all of the defenders i'm just fighting against myself yeah exactly like (laughs) tell you what you let me know how this goes i'm gonna i'm gonna go role play (laughs) right did did the five guys we killed matter no of course it didn't okay (laughs) So, so yeah, so there you go. You got to have some alternative for them to be doing that isn't just fighting on the ramparts. But then you also need to be flexible enough that sometimes that's what PCs do, right? Like if you're the archer, um, it definitely makes sense for you to be standing on the ramparts and spending your day like, you know, impacting the battle using your main skill set. Um, but we need to figure out exactly how we do that, right? Like what does the battlemaster fighter holding the gatehouse actually mean? Um, and then what dice are you rolling to determine the outcome? This is also a good opportunity to potentially split the party because everyone's focusing on the same task. You don't necessarily need to all be in the same location. You can still run within the same initiative uh, order and, and time frame, right? One person is poten- is trying to infiltrate. One person is directing troops. One person is sniping. Yep. And so what happens when the sniper gets hit <laughs> and they is make, making death save <laughs> rolls and the cleric <laughs> is 600 yards away on the opposite side of the castle because like attacks on the castle are always multifaceted. <laughs> like, two, two man teams. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've got to, you know, you have all the regular problems of splitting the party introduce themselves here because the scale of it tends not to be just as small as like a single room apartment. All right, so those are some issues that you're going to have to contend with. What are some approaches to make it work? So you can do mass combat. Like, I don't want to take that off the table. You can, you can, if you're happy with the rules that are available and your group understands them and likes them, like, do it that way. Let the players position and control different groups of troops on the table um, and use those rules to their effect. That's why they're there. Yeah, that's my favorite way to do mass combat is like, yeah, you can embed PCs with a particular unit or whatever, um, and I guess they control that one or their attack roll does or whatever. Um, But I like to sort of hand them control of whichever side they're on, right? Like, you're the defenders. Okay, you are the ones making the decision about defending against this siege. Yeah. Or you are deciding how you're going to, like, besiege these walls. 
Yep. Even if even if like in the narrative they're not necessarily the ones making the decision, uh, you, you can just let your players do it. Right. They, they could be uh, special advisors, perhaps consultants. <laughs> yeah, outside consultants. Look, and that I would like to be outside these walls <laughs> while I consult you on this. <laughs> Either way, this goes. We get paid. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let us consult on on the uh, contents of your war chest. <laughs> this is really more of a hostile takeover. Think of it like that. All yeah. right? This is just business. It's business. <laughs> so in games that do have mass combat, a lot of times they don't have rules specific to sieges. Um, so you're going to want to make sure that you have like satisfying like effects related to the siege. So bonuses to one side based on what they're doing um, and then letting the players figure out some way to like counter that strategy to either um, get their own equivalent bonuses or negate the uh, other side. You can also, uh, if the players are defending, let them start with a, a bonus to their actions that starts to fade as that attrition really sets in, as your stores uh, dwindle, as the defender's resolve weakens. Yeah. Um, so the main benefits of using mass combat, I think, are, one, you're using the rules that you have. Um, if you have mass combat rules, like, you know, it's nice to use the product you paid for. <laughs> Um, and it can also lead to a quicker resolution of, of the siege overall, right? Because you have a set of mechanics that are available to you that can tell you which side wins. Um, you can usually finish that in you know, a session or maybe even less depending on how long mass combat takes. Yeah, and how well you've studied the rules ahead of time. Yeah. Like, try to know them. So, otherwise, it's going to be a much slower resolution. But But it could basically take the place of, you know, maybe one big boss fight type encounter mm -hmm. in your session you know so it, it could just be like an hour of combat where you know your average encounter is maybe 30 minutes right it's us versus the city right a super boss <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, and it's sending out minions of course there are drawbacks to this approach you are of course still using mass combat which is no matter what clunky yep and then from a narrative perspective it's way less personal controlling um companies or regiments or whatever in their action is just not as much about individual characters and especially if they're like nameless and faceless you know masses in these units like you don't even have any personal co connection to you know the the eighth company like great yeah or company six no, I, we have <laughs> no attachment to company six or none <laughs> Because they're a revolving door. <laughs> to death. Only when they get to another company do they have names. That's right. Um, yeah, like, it's just hard to like get hit in the feels when, you oh, 25% of the pikemen are down. Yeah, I think that's actually one thing that we benefited a lot from in, um, in the Verza House arc was that Jim, as a player had gone through this exhaustive list of who leads all of his companies, who are the lieutenants, like how many men are in them, what's their role, all of this stuff. And as we had gone through and like determined which armsmen were coming with you to the planet and whatever, like when I would tell him the casualties, he would just have to start marking people off. Yeah, he would like roll randomly. All right, wait, we suffered 10% losses? All right, okay. well, 10% of this company. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, I think that wipes out this company. Yeah, or... Uh, Jones is dead. We love Jones. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, wait, Jonesy? <laughs> Did you guys hear Jonesy died? No. <laughs> jo Jonesy's whole squad is gone. What the? What's going on and here? And we remember because like that company had suffered losses 
previously and Jones had survived. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, they they were just names on a page. It's not like you had had like robust uh, role playing interactions with them, other than the fact that they had just been a recurring name that that Jim had been tracking and Draco had been reporting. Right. It was kind of important actually to have like very specific names that you could remember. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh wait, I heard that. Oh, I heard that before. And you know, occasionally they'd even get promotions, right? Because like, if the leader of the squad dies, you need another leader for the squad. And I guess we're gonna kind of roll randomly and see which of them gets promoted. Right. Well, actually, you would roll randomly to see who died, uh, and if it happened to be the lieutenant, then you, then he, <laughs> Draco would choose a promotion based on the prior random rolls and who was still surviving <laughs> and had performed admirably. Oh, he just got promoted and now he's dead. Yeah. This is so tragic. <laughs> the emperor's army is very hard. <laughs> he was one day from well, no one retires, but getting rotated out of company six. Yeah. <laughs> Getting rotated out is kind of a retirement. <laughs> um, so the next approach that is a little more narrative is to focus on the siege as just a series of offensives. Um, so you're taking this long time frame of maybe a month or multiple months and turning it into these like very manageable chunks of like more activity. So you have like sort of a preparation a battle and then a period of recovery um, and as you kind of work through that cycle right like things start to change over time both in the narrative and in your resources and in your feelings about how good you're doing or how likely you are to lose yeah this is a pretty cinematic approach you know if you see a movie where there's a siege you just hit the highlights mm -hmm. you know and then you have someone casually mention that like we've been waiting out here for three months right and you, you don't have to like roll dice to see like, hey, do my troops on the left rampart hold their spot or whatever? It's like, oh, it's narratively appropriate. Guess what? Like, you know, thousands of people are fighting over there and I don't think the left rampart is going to hold. You need to do something about it. Yeah, this allows for a lot of control of the pacing, especially if you're doing this over multiple sessions. And it offers opportunities for your players to insert themselves where they want, you know, to do something that actually sounds interesting for them. Um, there's a lot of different activities that your PCs could do, and it's informed by whatever happened in the last offensive, whether that was attempting to scale the walls or, um, you know, attempting to dig a tunnel or diverting a river, whatever. Yeah, and, and you can cycle through all these different approaches, like, you know, one offensive at a time of, like, what's happening in in the siege itself and then how are the pcs either helping that resisting that um or using that as a diversion to do their own thing you know whatever it is it also lets the pcs then play to their strengths um so that like if there's enough stuff going on and it's all like kind of confined to this like one episode then like the archer can go to the ramparts and do their thing and the battlemaster can command the gates which are under siege and the rogue and druid can sneak out through the sewers in order to attempt to assassinate the enemy general or something or in through the sewers i don't know which side are you on it depends you know it, this actually works well with uh, the mechanics of a lot of different games too you know if you think about 13th warrior right uh, we're the defenders because the the what uh people eaters the eaters of men eaters are coming of, eaters right of dead. and they've got the they've got the the worm right the fiery serpent uh -huh. that's coming what is their uh offensive this time they're all riding by and throwing flaming torches inside mm -hmm. you know that's essentially a series of skill checks right we're not i mean maybe we're trying to shoot a few of them but it doesn't really matter right. what we're actually doing is trying to survive 
and put out all these fires. Yep. And then once that happens, like they're gone for the day, you know, now we long rest or short rest or whatever, you know, we, we like do the thing that gets us our hit points back. We like refresh our abilities or our spells like that. That is something that players intuitively understand uh, in terms of the time frame. Right. So the benefits of doing it this way is that your players are constantly solving problems as their PCs, right? They are playing as their characters instead of playing as a, a large group of controlled by their characters. Yeah, they can just do whatever it is they would normally do. They don't have to think, okay, this company of archers, uh, how do they usually respond in the situation? Right. I guess they don't follow them into the forest. Uh, and it adds a lot of variety because, um, you know, sort of on the fly, players can decide what it is they're interested in doing right now. Right. And also, I mean, like, you know, we're thinking of this, I think, mostly as the characters defending. But if the characters are attacking, like, they have limitless possibilities for how they attempt to do this. Um, you know, like <laughs> they might start with just building an earthen ramp, um, or building like some towers to scale up to the, the walls or whatever, but they might get increasingly more exotic as these things, uh, fail or have mixed consequences. Right. Um, I'm going to summon a demon. I'm going to summon a demon. Yeah. 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 Like a siege demon. <laughs> yeah. Siege demon. Yeah. 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 Hey, how you doing? Um, uh, I don't have anything to offer you right now, but, <laughs> but inside that city, <laughs> All the souls. They're all yours. I don't I don't care. Could you try to keep the buildings intact? <laughs> <laughs> so some of the drawbacks then is that you're probably going to end up with multiple adventures uh, within the backdrop of a single siege. So it's probably going to slow your campaign progress down um, quite a bit. Yeah, and it can be difficult to measure that progress. You know, like, what is the mechanical effect of a propaganda campaign of airdropping leaflets and flyers into a city that, you know, swears that prisoners will be treated fairly if they just surrender? Yeah, it's like, is that is that just flavor? Is that fluff? Or was there, like, a mechanical impact? Did I spend my action for this, like, period doing something totally useless like what, what do i do yeah and you get in the situation where you know you're probably not taking like a lot of damage for example you know because like okay if, if the goal is to survive um the siege like uh as they're like catapulting in big rocks if you get hit with one you're you're just dead so like ideally you're trying not to get hit by one uh but that probably means you're not taking any damage it, it's sort of a strange thing where you're using particular kinds of resources. You're, you're like making skill checks or maybe using like big utility spells, but not necessarily using like um, on the ground, like, uh, you know, man to man level abilities right. as much. Yeah. Yeah. And that just means you've got to make sure that there's for characters who don't have other things to do other than hit stuff, that there's enough going on that they get a chance to hit stuff too. I love hitting stuff. Uh, but do I have to hit this wall again? I don't think I'm doing much. <laughs> tired of hitting this wall. <laughs> I'm so tired of hitting this wall. You know what? This is the only time that I would be interested in Shatter Spike. <laughs> <laughs> Big dumb sword breaks things. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Do we still have Shatter Spike? Has there been a bag <laughs> yeah, of holding for dig, eight levels? Dig that out of my, my, my bag of holding, Squire. <laughs> um, I think the third approach that works well here is to break the siege up into a series of set piece scenes um, and let that highlight sort of uh, like just the watershed moments of the fight. So like you could just kind of narrate through the, the general gist of what the fighting is and then zoom in on exactly what's going to define the outcome here. 
Um, like I think of a, a great example is like in the in Troy, not a great movie, um, but they constantly have this large battle right where Achilles is darting in and out and Ajax is like swinging his hammer and, and all this stuff and then eventually two champions meet right and like weirdly like everyone just forms like a ring around them and like it's like it's a dance off or, or whatever and they just fight amongst themselves um, while two armies wait to find out their fate yeah I don't know if this was a thing that happened a lot in the ancient world or if it's just a narrative device that bards in the ancient world used a lot yeah <laughs> uh, but it's great for your games right and also i'm sort of surprised it's the first time we've mentioned troy in this episode <laughs> yeah i know right it seems like a big big one <laughs> but think about um think about the uh, the iliad right like we open not at the beginning of the siege we open with it's been 10 years <laughs> uh-huh yeah <laughs> <laughs> now stuff happens right <laughs> like they've recruited achilles <laughs> <laughs> finally yeah he was 11 when this started. Exactly. <laughs> we had to wait for him to grow up. <laughs> right. Um, so, so in those cases, like the narrative value of, of a champion duel is all psychological, right? Like it, the side that loses has lost its champion. It means they've lost the favor of the gods or like they are cursed or, you know, like their, their fortunes have turned. Um, and, and that means that like they're more likely to lose um, is sort of the narrative arc. For either side, though, um, a great set piece is when the besiegers actually do break through the walls, however they end up doing it, right? The gate has fallen or a large piece of the, the wall has been breached and now they're pouring in. This is great if you're on the attacking side. This is a great scene if you're on the defending side. Yeah, I mean, this is like also like the most dramatic part of like even historical fiction and all of that stuff, right? It's like who goes through the breach, right? Like um that's the line from shakespeare once more unto the breach um it's it's all about like who are those heroes who who are the members of the forlorn hope that's the first party through that knows they're going to suffer like suicidal casualties um but if they survive like they secure all the honor of cracking open this siege uh you can get a song sung about you huh yeah huh um, and historically, by the way, that's a real thing. Like the Forlorn Hope really did get like combat promotions and double pay. Um, and like officers fought over the right to to lead their company through first. Yeah, it was a kind of a literal funnel. And then, of course, a metaphorical funnel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this is an opportunity for, you know, that scene of furious fighting against seemingly unlimited enemies um whether it's the defenders that you're like trying to swarm and, and break through like you're the point of the spear mm-hmm. they're just everywhere right because they, they'll, they'll converge at this point right or you know your wall has fallen and now just an entire army pours through a gap that's 20 feet wide right and the, the key here is that you're not fighting a mass combat in a small space what you're really doing is fighting a handful of enemies in at, like at a time in like an endless sequence until you know you achieve some objective you reach some point or like you you survive long enough that you've now got like a beachhead inside or, or whatever it is that's necessary right every round six more soldiers pour through the gap exactly so like you've got to kill at least five of those <laughs> preferably six and if you miss one you got to like catch up next round um, I think another one that's pretty iconic is like uh, when bombing starts, you know, if you think of like the London um, air blitz or um, even just, you know, like 
more conventional sieges as well like there's always a point where like the air raid is on and bombs are being dropped inside the city and you've got to get to your shelter or you need to scramble your anti-aircraft defenses um, or on the flip side if you're leading that effort you're actually getting use out of your pilot skill you know you've got to they, they've already got their anti-aircraft defenses obviously and you need to evade them yeah this is a, an opportunity to sort of play up the randomness you know like roll on the table like on the table in front of everyone to see where the bombs are landing where the fireball goes off yeah you know where the the giant rocks hit you know and maybe it totally misses you but everyone's waiting in anticipation to see if they're going to need to make deck saving throws if they're you know going to get splattered and lose half their health um or if they're going to be like right next to a building that collapsed and they're going to have to run in and like drag people out yep and this could lead to like a dogfight or like an aerial duel um, as you're trying to get your bombs off safely while they're resisting you. Um, or it could transition into like, this is what causes the breach, right? Like there was widespread bombing, uh, the breach has opened, and now like you've got to defend it with only like the shattered remnant of your forces. I like a kind of like a Galaga or Space Invaders approach sometimes when like whatever the bombs are maybe it's alchemist fire or something like that gets tossed in there's an opportunity to scorching ray or hit it with an arrow or something and have it explode mostly harmlessly above before it actually lands yeah yeah (laughs) and this is like okay all right all you archers go right do your thing (laughs) shoot the dragon (laughs) or at least shoot the guy who's riding the dragon please (laughs) or cone of cold into its mouth okay So as we wrap this up, um, just also keep in mind that sieges are an opportunity to tie other tropes into your game or opportunity to use tropes from your game to tie the siege into the overall. Um, Horror is one of the obvious ones, like in in Verza House was uh, a great example of that. You know, like it only lasted a couple days in game time. Um, But just imagine like dealing with that type of thing for months, right? mass casualties you know loss of family and friends loss of your safety martial law starvation cannibalism all the fun things that go along with sieges on the flip side it's an opportunity for your pcs to lead that forlorn hope you know um fortune tends to be on the sides of the pcs Uh, there's always a little bit of plot armor yeah um be the one to jump through that breach it can be a lot of fun assuming you don't get pin cushioned immediately yep or be that champion who fights the dance fight (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you also want to think about you know what is it that your pcs are willing to do to end this siege Uh, i think you know it's war right so you kill defenders or kill attackers but then usually like what happens when the city surrenders do you butcher everyone inside or or like will you use a plague to take the city right yeah i mean even so like sometimes there's just a question of like is it worth defending? Like, is the cost too high? Is the moral cost of fighting this fight too high? Should we just escape? Like we're doing in our Dark Sun game. Right. <laughs> we are currently being besieged by Hamanu. And what did we decide to do? Leave. Yep. We dug some tunnels. <laughs> um, not quite the same as Hamanu arriving, but uh, you can also have like divine intervention um, is another trope that you can pull in. So if the PCs can prove their faith and devotion, um, maybe their deity will more directly aid them, um, or maybe even just narratively, right? The the tide of battle turns improbably in their favor. This is a very Old Testament, right? Like, th- wasn't there a couple times when like prophets were like went out to meet an army and were like, "All right, I'm going to set a beer, you set a beer," 
and we're both gonna pray and whoever's altar lights on fire wins and then the losing side leaves right Right. yeah <laughs> let's settle this like crazy people <laughs> all right do you hear that ishan that is me adding extra kindling you know just in case <laughs> spark a fire i've been that pious lately <laughs> well if you're setting things on fire then it's time to use it to heat up some new characters in the character creation forge but before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Deja Not Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. Oh, man. I really want to experience the magic of Dungeons and Dragons, but I'm a cave hermit who made an oath never to speak to other people again. And I want to watch a classic fantasy series like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones, but I can't stand the sight of human faces. Well, I want to relive the magic of make-believe, the humor of a preschool-aged child, and the genuine camaraderie of nearly 10 years of friendship through only my ears, but I don't know how. <laughs> you ignorant fools! You don't even know about... Dames and Dragons! <gasps> what? But... Dames and Dragons? What's that? Dames and Dragons is a Dungeons and Dragons actual play podcast. A, a, a podcast? So I can experience the spontaneous group storytelling of D&D without breaking my oath of solitude? That's right. And I can take part in a rich fantasy storyline without ever having to lay eyes on a disgusting human face? Never again will the faces plague you. And it has a cast of four female friends who make constant immature jokes as they play? Absolutely. I would never lead you astray, my friend. Whether you love D&D or just love a good fantasy tale, Dames and Dragons is the podcast for you. Tells the story of three unlikely heroes who are chosen to become guardians of the goddess of their world, a floating island by the name of Estra. By God, that sounds like something I could get into. Sounds like something I'd love. Sounds like something I'd make. Well, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> Dames and Dragons, updated every second Monday, wherever podcasts are sold. And we're back. So, this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are, of course, building the Siege Engine. So the siege engine is uh, is both an engineer capable of building siege weapons and also a siege weapon of his own, <laughs> on his own even. I see. So we have played up both I am an engine uh-huh. and I can knock down walls. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so what is the build? Uh, Forge Cleric 17, Oath of Conquest Paladin 3. Okay, I think I'm seeing a bit of where you're going here. Uh, Forge Cleric 17 gets immunity to fire, which I think many siege engines are. Yes, 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 yes. Fire okay. is very dangerous in a siege, so being immune to it makes it pretty handy. Helpful, yes. Um, yeah, so Forge Cleric actually gets a lot of cool stuff um, that's helpful. So you start with Blessing of the Forge, which means you always have either a plus one armor or a plus one weapon at minimum. Um, that's just 
super helpful. Um, you also get that channel divinity artisan's blessing um, that lets you quickly, like in an hour, you can craft anything um, mundane object up to a hundred gold pieces, which means you can always build your replacement parts or you know skeleton keys to unlock the sewers or whatever it is you have to do. Soul of the Forge gets you resistance to fire and another plus one AC. Yeah, that comes at like six level, six, I think. Yeah, uh-huh. So it it's an early helper. Um, but eventually you get Saint of the Forge and Flame, which gives you full-on immunity, like you mentioned, as well as resistance to non-magical bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage. I mean, not every archer on that wall has a magical bow, right? <laughs> right. Almost none of them, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> also, what kind of damage does boiling oil do? Uh, I would say fire. Hmm, okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. Well, huh. It's like I planned for this. Um, and then the domain spells are actually really, really cool for this too. Um, you know, you get some smites and things like that, but um, heat metal, super useful in a siege um, or particularly defending a siege, I think. Um, but then you get fabricate, wall of fire, animate object, and creation. Uh, those four spells basically give you a whole toolkit for either um, creating siege weapons or uh, undermining them. Yeah, I uh, make a siege engine. I make a catapult. Yeah, I, I fabricate a battering ram. <laughs> I burn a battering ram with a wall of fire. <laughs> I animate a battering ram and it flies up in the air where no one can get to it or it lands on its own army. Oh, I like the idea of I animate uh, a burning oil. <laughs> I animate a cauldron. <laughs> So by ninth level, you can basically walk up to a castle and just immediately build whatever tool you need to break into it. The other thing you can do is, you know, just cast Earthquake. Yeah, when you talk about this, you get to really high level Earthquake, uh, Hurricane, Tsunami. Uh, uh, Firestorm. Firestorm. I mean, Wall of Fire itself is just great for burning down wooden palisades. Like, you're you're wasting your time if you're not just Wall of Flaming your way through those problems. Yeah, what's the problem? I made you another wall. Yeah. <laughs> I replaced it with a better wall. Yeah. <laughs> for, like, <laughs> you know, a minute. <laughs> All right. So from Paladin, we'll get additional spells like Armor of Agathis and Command, which are very useful when you are fighting on the ramparts in close quarters. Right. Uh, your Channel Divinity is... Uh, guided strike which will make sure that you don't miss and terrifying presence for an area of effect frighten which is also going to give enemies disadvantage on ability checks yep um now you also get smite as a paladin so that's always good Um, this is the first time we've had a paladin where we're not like and you get smite yeah it's like (laughs) smite's not bad i mean it's just like (laughs) you know it's like another tool for you if if you need to like break things or people yourself sure um but what we're actually here for, the two things that really make you into the engine part of this siege engine, uh, divine health at third level gives you immunity to disease, just like a machine, uh, and then a fighting style, which all of them pretty much work. Um, you can take your pick, but I think either defense or protection are probably the most thematic. Yeah, a lot of siege engines have, um, you know, parts sort of sticking out of it that provide cover. Right, from right? arrows and burning oil and yeah. those types of things, yeah. So exactly. it feels like protection fighting style with the shields feels about right. <laughs> Stand behind me! Yeah, <laughs> allow me to shield you as you <laughs> run yourself full speed into that wall. So in terms of leveling order, uh, I think we'll start Cleric 6 to get um, get to that fire resistance, and then we'll take three levels of Paladin, and then finish out Cleric. So Shane, who is your siege engine? Uh, my siege engine is a forge cleric who 
went a little too ham on the uh, on the devotion to his deity. Um, so he ended up kind of like recrafting and reforging himself um, in the fires of his forge. Um, so he walks around as a giant armored monstrosity. He's he's a warforged. Ah, that's what I'm saying. He's mm-hmm, a warforged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but he was once a man. Oh, so he's a he's a soul forged. I think is that what they're called? Is that it? They're, they're you... like people who replace their own parts with warforged with warforged parts. parts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Basically, um, yeah. So that's what he does. Um, and then in the process, right, like um, trying to become that uh, epitome of warforged technology and and engineering and forging, <laughs> he wants to become a juggernaut. Ah, the juggernaut. How about your siege engine? My siege engine is uh, basically a Green Lantern. Um, okay, so break that down for me. <laughs> she assume uh, I don't watch Ryan Reynolds movies. <laughs> you shouldn't watch that one. Um, she basically uh, uses her powers to create objects out of nothing, and then you know constructs, uh, flies them into to things. Um, she's a leader of men and doesn't want to see her uh, companions injured or, or to waste more human life than is necessary on either side, right? The longer a siege take the, takes, the more people inside the city die, the more people outside the city die. So the best thing to do is just show up and end this all quickly. Uh-huh. And the best way to do that is for her to lead from the front. Everyone stay behind her. Uh, she summons whatever it is they need to get around this particular set of walls to knock them down um, and get everyone inside. And then ideally still has the skills because of course she is a paladin she has things like command uh, still has the skills and abilities to broker a relatively uh, unbloody piece i love this idea um mostly because if this were like a known superhero type character like the green lantern that would mean that countries would become like comically bellicose knowing that to avoid sieges she was just going to intervene on the attacker's behalf (laughs) (laughs) This, we really need to end this quickly. Right, yeah. Hey, guys, look. <laughs> I wish you'd stop attacking each other. I'm really tired of doing this, but let's just get this over fast, shall like, we? I would help the defenders, but I'm not very good at that. Right. <laughs> Can't break it's, out of a siege. It's, it's not my skill set. <laughs> all right, before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all of our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. You can also leave us a five-star review on iTunes, and if you do, we will read it on the air. Just like this. This is unrivaled TRPG content from the UK by Sunbrit. I can't stop listening. Shane and Ishan offer entertaining commentary on running tabletop RPGs with a focus on D&D. They provide insights on game mechanics, thoughtful suggestions on how DMs and players can improve their games, and bite-sized running commentary on their own RPG campaigns, which are entertaining enough in their own right but which are also mined for instructive moments their listeners can learn from. This wonderful podcast has made me as excited and inspired to play as when I first opened my player's handbook. Highly recommended. You know, I'm glad it's entertaining in its own right. Uh, I'm glad it's not not entertaining. Yeah, I feel like the Brits have just very, very nice iTunes reviews. They're yeah, just very there's, kind. There's none of the shade yeah. that you sometimes get from American iTunes reviews. Yeah, our American listeners are as awful as we are. <laughs> I I do feel like they understand us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're kidding. We appreciate all of you. <laughs> Every single one of you, except yeah. you know that one. You right. know who you are. But uh, but thank you, thank you, Sunbrit. So, what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about running one shots 
using long-term characters. And in the character creation forge? We're building the wedlock. Oh, good lord. Oh, yeah. That's it for episode 171 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.